All right. Hey, one more week uh, as we close out the book of Philippians today. It's been a joy um, teaching through this book. I hope that you've enjoyed studying through it. And I do hope that you'll come back uh, this evening as we have a worship and prayer time. Um, as Dan was saying, you know, that we're, um, we'll have heartburn. I was thinking that um, Wesley, who's the founder of the Wesleyan movement, as he was being drawn to Christ, he said, my heart was strangely warmed. And I thought maybe he was just had a chili cook-off beforehand. So I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but we can test that out this evening. So I do hope you'll come back 5 o'clock and spend some time together as a church family. Let's pray as we jump into Philippians for the last time. Uh, for a while here today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the scriptures, for the, their beauty, for their depth, for the multifaceted way that they speak to our soul. And Lord, I pray that, that they would this morning, that you would, as your spirit empowers them in our lives. We invite you to have your way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab the pen that's in the seat back in front of you and the bulletin that you got. And somewhere on your bulletin, I want you to give me your best guess. Write down how long you think you can hold your breath for underwater. <laughs> how long you think you can hold your breath for underwater? Okay? We've all been a part of some competition in a hot tub some, at one point in time, right, where we were trying to hold our breath for us. How long do you think you can hold your breath for? All right, you got your number in your head? Okay, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Everybody, raise your hand. Come on. Everybody, clap your hands. No, okay. If you think you can hold your breath for at least a minute, keep your hand in the air. One minute. One minute or more. Hands in the air. Okay? If you think you can hold your breath for a minute and 30 seconds or more, keep your hand in the air. A minute and 30 seconds or more. If you think you can hold your breath for two minutes or more, keep your hand in the air. Two minutes or more. Three minutes or more, keep your hand in the air. Okay, so just want you to look around. We had um, one or two people at the two-minute-plus area. We have, look around, we have zero people who would say that they could hold their breath for over three minutes. I was doing some research this week, and I, I came across a new sort of sport as they're, they're trying to keep track of this a, a little bit better. Um, it's called free diving. And free diving is exactly what it sounds like. It's people who will either spear fish or dive underwater, and they're going to test this. They try to see who can dive the furthest down into the ocean without dying, and then um, who can hold their breath the longest. So, any guesses on how deep the record is as far as somebody swimming down into the ocean? Throw out some numbers for me. Yeah. 175 feet. Higher than 175 feet. Any other guesses? Guess. Throw it out. 300. Higher. 1,000. A little bit lower. 813 feet is the record for an unassisted free dive. And what that means is they don't have any breathing apparatus. They had a rope that they could pull down and weights pushing them down, which seems a little freaky to me, okay? 813 feet down. Now, guess the record for somebody holding their breath. Four minutes longer. Five minutes longer. 11 minutes and 35 seconds is the world record. Now, I heard this conversation with a free dive instructor this week. 
And here's what he suggested. He said, if you're of average and average health, he said he could teach you in three days how to hold your breath for at least four minutes and dive down to at least 100 feet depth in the ocean. His point was, listen, we are capable of far more than we could ever dream or ever imagine. People who do this, people who free dive are crazy, number one, but they talk about they talk about this um, mammalian dive reflex that's sort of wired into us. They call it the master switch. And we've all been underwater where we felt that moment of, oh no, I'm going to drown. This is where I meet Jesus. And what they said is that's actually your body's reaction to carbon dioxide. And there's a way in your mind to address that and say, no, I'm not going to die. They call it the master switch that you can flip metaphorically speaking, and stay underwater far longer. Your heart rate stops to drop. And if you ask any free diver what the secret to it is, here's what they're going to tell you. Relax. You can't freak out. I started thinking about that idea because I think a lot of us live in a world where we feel like we're running out of air. I think a lot of us, we've, we've, had, we've walked through seasons of life that have been painful, they've been difficult, and we would never want to go through them again. Maybe you're in one of those seasons of life right now, today. And what I want to share with you this morning is that I believe that you are capable of not only surviving, but in thriving in far more difficult circumstances than you could ever possibly Imagine, Thomas Edison said, if we, all, if we did all the things we were capable of, we would literally astound ourselves. So I want to suggest to you that you're not running out of air. I want to suggest to you that you can stay under longer. I know it's painful. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. And not just survive under, but actually thrive. Will you open to Philippians chapter 4 as we study the last section of this great letter. Now remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to his friends back in Philippi. He's in Rome on house arrest. Philippi is a city in which he planted a church over a decade before. And from house arrest, he writes this letter back to the church at Philippi. If you were here last week, you remember that Paul instructed us, listen, don't be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and petition. Present your request to God. And then he went on to say, be careful, think about what you're thinking about, because whatever you magnify in your life, you're going to multiply in your life. And from jail, he goes on to close the letter like this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You didn't, you didn't have a way to show it. So Paul's writing to this church who's supported him financially. If you've been here over the course of our study, you'll remember that when you were in jail in the first century, the state wasn't supplying your every need. They didn't feed you. So it was really important if you were going to commit a crime to have good friends because they were the ones who literally fed you while you were in jail. And so Paul's saying, hey, thank you for the gifts that you gave. Thank you for the way that you provided for my very practical needs. You helped keep me alive. And then he goes on to say this. 
Not that I'm speaking of being in need. So he goes, listen, thank you for your gift. I didn't really need it, but thanks for giving it. He's going to explain what he means in a little bit more depth. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. So it wasn't that I was going to die without it. He says, here's what he says. For I have, say it with me, church, learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. I know how it is to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Now, this word content is a fascinating word in the Greek. It's only used in this way, in this tense, one time in the scriptures. Anybody know where? Right here. Okay, just just making sure you're dialed in. Just making sure you're dialed in. Right here. Yeah. And here's what the word literally means. It means to be sufficient within one's self. To need nothing from the outside in order to not only survive, but to thrive. So a country that's content has no need for outside imports in order to sustain its way of life. Now, here's what Paul has in mind. When Paul writes about contentment, he has a group of people in mind who are called the Stoics. Will you say that with me? The Stoics. They were this Greek philosophy group, and they taught, in Paul's day, they taught a lot about contentment. Because contentment was a huge value for people living in the first century. Here was the Stoics teaching about contentment in a nutshell. If you can distance yourself from any needs, if you can distance your heart from being hurt or by having um, any sort of outside influence needed in order to sustain it, then you will be content. So the Stoics way of teaching people how to achieve contentment was what the Buddhists would call detachment. I don't need anything from anybody to be okay. I am content, I'm happy, I'm pleased, I'm okay within myself. Here's how the scholar T.R. Glover said it. He said, Stoics made the heart a desert and called it peace. So he said, listen, they just, they dried it up. They took all emotion all dreams, all hopes, all love and all care for another, they sucked that from the human experience and they called it contentment. If you don't need anything from anybody else, you can be content. So when Paul uses this word, it has a ton of understanding, a ton of baggage in the culture that he's writing to. Now what you'll notice if you read through this passage is that Paul is using the word very differently than the Stoics. Because it's very different to say, I need nothing, than it is to say, I have everything I need. Those are two different approaches to life. Those are two different approaches to contentment. Paul is not saying, I'm cold and I'm emotionless and I need nothing. What Paul is saying is that I've found the secret that addresses everything I need. And Jesus is the epitome of what the human soul longs for. 
See, the Stoics, they would have taught that you need to be self-sufficient in order to be content. What Paul teaches is that we need to be God-dependent in order to be content. Because in him, we are invited to the very thing that our souls were designed to step into. Um, St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in thee. And that's what Paul's inviting us to. He's inviting us to this way of contentment that's based on dependence. And see, here's how we'll say it this morning. That a posture of dependence leads to a life of contentment. See, the Stoics would have suggested self-sufficiency was what we needed in order to be content. So I don't need anything else coming in in order to be okay. And Paul goes, oh, no, 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 no. That's not how we achieve this peace for our soul. The way that we achieve the peace that our soul longs for is by meeting the one our soul was designed for and stepping into relationship with him. It's not I have no needs. It's I have everything I need as I'm attached to the one who loves me and who gave himself for me. See, Christ dependency, not self-sufficiency, is what leads to a life of vitality. Here's how A.W. Tozer, the great author, put it. He said, the man who has, or the person who has God for his treasure, has all things in one. Has everything. This word, so Paul doesn't just leave it there and go, okay, um, I'm just going to change the word contentment and leave you to sort of figure it out on your own. He actually, in this passage, unpacks what it means to live a life of contentment. Here's the first thing he says. He says, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have, say it with me again, church, learned. It's, I became a student of contentment. I started to study my own soul. I started to study my own desires. I started to study my own passions and my longings. And throughout the course of my journey in life, I mean, you think about Paul, shipwrecked multiple times, beaten, flogged, jailed. And he goes, through it all, life was my laboratory. And through the course of life, I learned how to hold Jesus so supremely that I was able to say in any circumstance, I'm okay because my soul found the one that I long for. I've learned it, Paul says, which means that it's not the natural default setting for life. I mean, have you ever noticed that? That naturally we don't drift towards contentment. We actually push back against it, and we find a number of reasons to not be content, which is why the great preacher Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, now, Contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It's the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be specially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God sows into us. Raise your hand if you think that's awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, so here's what I just want to press on us this morning a little bit. You're going to have opportunities, my guess is within the next few days, to practice contentment. If you're having people over for Thanksgiving, may I suggest 
that it may not go exactly as you think in your head or dreamed that it will go. I mean, we are talking about family here. And if you're going over to somebody else's house, it may not go exactly the way you think it will go there either. See, one of the hard things about contentment is that it's forged in the midst of discontent. We learn this, and it's, Paul calls it a secret, so it's not on the surface. It's not something that we just stumble across and go, there it is. It's something that we have to excavate from our lives as the Spirit stirs it up. And my guess is that you're going to have some opportunities over the next few days to say, all right, Father, if life is my laboratory, how might you be instructing me in the way of contentment? Because I want to be sufficient within you. And sometimes it takes a little bit of a different perspective. There, there's this old story about a Jewish man who went to his rabbi and he said, Rabbi, we have nine people living in a one-bedroom house. It's loud. It smells. It's miserable. And the rabbi listens to him and goes, okay, do you have a goat? He says to him. And the man says, well, yeah, we have a goat. I don't know what that has anything to do with a one-bedroom house with nine people in it, but we do have a goat. And he says, here's what I want you to do for the next week. I want you to bring the goat in the house. And the man looks at him like he's crazy. And the rabbi says, just believe me and come back in a week and let me know how it goes. So he came back in a week and said to his rabbi, this was ridiculous. Our house is loud. Our house smells. It is absolutely horrific in there. You couldn't imagine. It seems like a war zone. And the rabbi says back to his congregant, okay, here's what I want you to do now. Let the goat back outside where it was before. Come back and talk to me in a week. Comes back, talks to his rabbi in a week, and he goes, oh my goodness, it's beautiful. Our house is quiet. Our house smells good. It is remarkable in there. And that's the way contentment works, isn't it? It's all about perspective. It's about how we look at the world and what we think we need in order to be happy. See, Paul says, I've learned it. I'm on this journey of stepping into the secret, stepping into the mysteries of cherishing God above all else. And he also says, not only did he learn it, but he says, contentment is not circumstantial. So he will point out in this passage, I know what it means to abound, as if to say to the, to the stoic, oh, you think you need to detach from everything in order to be content? Oh, no. I've learned the secret of contentment when I have more than enough. And I know what it is to be brought low, Paul says. In every circumstance, I've learned to discipline my heart to cherish Jesus above all. And I think he'd say to us, I know it feels like you're running out of air, but there is a switch that you can hit that will invite you deeper into the love of God that will sustain you and you can stay down for longer than you thought you could and you can even thrive while you're there. Because contentment is learned and contentment is not based on circumstances. I've noticed in my own life, and I want to just fly through these, but I've noticed four things in my own life that are thieves of contentment. And I just want to invite you to write these down, because you may see them in your own life as well. The first thief of contentment that I've found in me and in the scriptures is comparison. 
It's comparison. I mean, have you ever noticed that it's easy to be content until you meet somebody that has more or better? And this is one of the enemy's tactics in our life to say to us, hey, if you just had that, if you had a little bit better, a little bit brighter, a little bit newer, then you'd be okay. And we start to compare ourselves to other people. This is a, a biblical quandary as well. In John chapter 21, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee. Galilee. He meets Peter, who's just betrayed him. He has this intimate conversation with Peter in John 21. He says, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. Peter, I want you to tend to my lambs. Peter, I want you to love the things that I love, and I want you to lead the church, Peter. And Peter goes, okay, that's great, Lord. And, and Jesus says back to him, and when you get older, you're going to go places you don't want to go, and you're going to stretch out your arms, and, and you're going to be led by me, and basically saying, and you're going to be crucified, Peter. And Peter says to him, okay, okay, okay. But what about him? What about, what about John, who's right next to him? What's going to happen to him? As if to say, like, is he getting a better lot than me? Because I am okay with that, Jesus, as long as John has to do the same thing. And Peter says, let, Jesus says back to Peter, let me worry about that. You follow me. Isn't comparison just a trap that we fall into? Here's the second thing, competition. Competition. It's this idea that in order to be okay, I have to be better. And it can be competition with people outside of us. But if you're anything like me, it's competition with me. Right? So year over year, I want to see it going up and to the right. I want to see improvements. I want to see bettering. I want to see every run I go on, I want it to be a little bit faster than the run that I went on the day before. Anybody crazy like me? Okay, no. I need counseling. I need counseling. I, need, I just need to talk it through, I think. I know there's, you're, you're, there's people wired like that where we go, all right, Lord, I'll be okay so long as I'm better. Third is coveting. It's the conviction, if I had fill in the blank, then my life would be complete. So the person who covets cannot walk in contentment. My son, who's seven years old now, our oldest son, is going through this phase that I think probably might last um, until he's in his 20s. I'm not sure, but he sees something on TV and he just wants it, right? If it's a commercial or he sees something his friend has and he just, he asks so many times during the day. I'm like, Jesus needs to come back soon because I cannot answer that question again. And so we thought, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to force him to make a list of all the things that he's grateful for to remind him of everything that he has. And so he starts writing this list. We're like, hey, Thanksgiving's coming up, buddy. Let's spend some time cultivating um, an awareness of all the good things we have, and let's be grateful people. And he's like, all right, that's a great idea. And he makes this wonderful list. You know, it's like, grateful for my family, grateful for my house, I'm grateful for all my friends, I'm grateful for my grandparents. And I, like, he brings this list back puts it on the table, and I'm like, cue the angels in heaven, because I think I just won Father of the Year Award. I'm like, I'm, I am patting myself on the back. He goes, okay, yeah, so dad, there's all the things that I'm grateful for, and then he flipped it over, and he said, on the other side, here's my Christmas list. <laughs> that's, that's life, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's easy to be hard on the little guy, but it's in all of us, isn't it? 
oh yeah, Lord, we're grateful, we're grateful, we're grateful. And um, here's the list of things that I really want, right? Coveting. The third or the fourth is cynicism. It's the thought in the back of our head, God, you are so good. You're wonderful. And when is the bottom going to fall out of this? You ever been there? It's on vacation as you get closer and closer to the end, starting to count down the days until vacation is over, going, no. Which of those touches your soul? Comparison, competition, coveting, cynicism. Because if we can identify where the enemy typically attacks us and the things that we long for that start to own us, we can push back against those with this disposition or posture of, God, I have everything I need in you. You're sufficient and you're good in every season. Will you remind me of it? See, Paul's conclusion is that Jesus is the secret of contentment. It's not having no needs. It's meeting the one in whom all of our needs are met. But he doesn't leave it at that. He wants to teach us how and why to step into this life of contentment more fully. And so look again with me at Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Because here's the first thing he's going to instruct us on. So if you're sitting here going, all right, Paulson, that's great, but how do I do this? How do I live the life of contentment? I'm really glad you asked. Here's what Paul says. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This I can do literally means I have power. I have this latent, dormant power in my soul to do anything, he says, or to do all things through God who pours power into me. Literally, you could translate this verse, I am strong for all things in the one who is strengthening me. So here's what Paul says. How do we walk in contentment? Well, we realize that we have a personal connection to God's accessible power. He goes, it's here. We, we, we have a power because of the spirit of God that lives inside of us that we can tap into. I know it feels like you're running out of air, but there's a master switch that you can hit and step into the fullness of what God designed you for. Paul goes, oh, there's great power there. But there's also a huge problem with this verse, isn't there? I mean, it's probably the most proof-texted verse in the entire New Testament. Case in point. Stephen Curry, or Steph Curry, he's the, one of the best basketball players in the NBA right now. Last year was writing on his shoes, I can do all things, dot, 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 in quotes. Well, Under Armour came to him and said, hey, I see that you're writing that on your Nikes. And we will actually write it on there for you if you want to sign with us. And he said, oh, sure, great, wonderful. I can do all things. I can do all things. I can win all basketball games. You may have heard of this guy, too. Um, Tim Tebow, I know he's a delicate subject in Colorado. Uh, we could probably divide a line. Some love him, some hate him. Um, I just want to talk about his theology for a second. He, on his eye black, Philippians 4.13, which is wonderful. So long as it doesn't mean I can win every game by Christ who strengthens me. 
I mean, we do recognize that there would be a little bit of an intellectual quandary, don't we, if somebody on the opposite team had the same eye black? I mean, imagine that there might be a Christian on both sides who can do all things through Christ who gives them strength. See, now, here's the thing. If by writing Philippians 4.13 on his eye black, he means... I can hold my head high and walk proud whether I win or whether we get blown out because my sufficiency is not in football, but it's in Jesus. And I'm okay whether we win or whether we lose, whether I'm a starting quarterback or a tight end. I'm okay if I'm in the league or out of the league, actually, because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's what Paul would be saying. I can be in jail, or I can be on the mountaintop, or I can be anywhere in between. It's not about where I am. It's about who's in me that gives me strength. And so I don't know where it is that you're walking, what you're walking through this morning, but I do know that there is grace available at the hand of Jesus. There is power that he wants to invite you into. And Paul says, oh, that's, that I'm walking content because the Spirit of God is at work in me, bringing peace, knitting together the broken pieces of my life into a mosaic that declares his glory. I can do all things, he says. And Paul goes on. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church enter, entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. So Paul's back to praising them and thanking them for the way that they helped him carry the good news of the gospel. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Isn't that a heartfelt thank you? I mean, it's just a wonderful, and Paul, I wish we had more time to dive into it, but let me just point out three things that Paul says about giving in this section of scripture. One, he uses this word partnership. In the Greek, it's literally koinonia, it's fellowship. So he's saying the people that helped fund my ministry did far more than fund me. They actually partnered with me. They linked arms and they linked hearts, and we were in this together. I couldn't have done it without them, Paul says. Isn't that a beautiful picture of giving? I don't know how you feel when you put something in the offering plate here, or when you give online, or when you text to give, or however you like to do it. But my hope is you don't feel like you're funding ministry. My hope is that you feel like you're a partner in what God is doing through us to reach the world for the glory of the name of Christ. This is partnership, which is why in our membership covenant, we talk about giving generously. Why? Because together we want to make much of the name of Jesus, and we know. As we give to the same thing, our hearts get knitted together. So Paul says, we were, we were partners in this. He also makes this really strange statement in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit 
that increases to your credit. He's going, hey, I know you're giving sacrificially. And I know that this is money that you've worked hard to earn. But here's his point. Will you look up at me for a second? You can never outgive God. That's his point. That whether it's fruit in, in, in some heavenly realm or place, and that some scholars will argue that, or whether it's fruit in our lives today, I think it's probably both. God's saying, listen, when you give, you receive far more back than you could ever give out. Anybody experienced that before? Yeah, absolutely. This boomerang effect of God saying, all right, you're not going to outgive me. And finally, in verse 18, it says that their gift for, uh, to Paul was a sacrifice. A, 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 sort of paints a picture of a burnt offering where the smoke just rises to God. It's evangelistic in nature, giving. Generosity points back to our great God, as Paul will write in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to whom? God, right. So we not only partner with each other, and not only comes back on us, but it also rises in declaration of God's praise and God's goodness. And then listen to what Paul says. He says, and my God might supply every need of yours. No. And my God most likely will supply every need. No. And my God will. We say, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's why Paul says I can be content. I can be content in any and every situation because I have this pervasive conviction about God's Christocentric provision. So, so the provision that he gives us through the person and work of Christ. Here's what Paul would say. He's meeting all of our needs in Christ Jesus. So if God can't give it to us in Christ, he doesn't plan on giving it to us at all. And I think sometimes we pray for things that would have to be met outside of that, but he goes, no, this is, my, this is the way that I'm meeting the needs of humanity. This is the way I forgive sins. It's only through Jesus, this is the way that I bless, and it's been my plan from the very beginning, from the Abrahamic covenant all the way through. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus. That's great news. And Paul says, I have this deep-seated conviction in my soul, even as I sit in jail, that God's not only going to supply all of your needs, but that God will supply my needs Hudson Taylor said it like this, God's work done in God's way will receive God's supply. But here's a really fascinating thing about this passage of scripture, is that God's supply doesn't just drop out of the, drop out of the sky. You know that, right? Like you've never probably seen a parachute coming down with money to pay your rent. Neither did Paul. I mean, read the letter. He's going, hey, Philippian church, you were God's hands and feet to meet the needs that I had. 
and the times that I had him. You were extension. My God will supply every one of my needs. And oftentimes he does it through his body, the church. So a friend of mine, a, a number, I think over a year ago, started this group of guys where they would get together and, and they went to Pastor Dan and asked Dan for a list of names of elderly people in our church who needed help caring for their homes. My friend had this vision. He said, listen, guys learn so much better, um, not necessarily around a table talking about a book, but using our hands. And so they've blessed a number of people in our church by coming to help clear out um, things in their yard. Uh, but recently, um, they went and they painted somebody's house. And they painted, painted their house. And then it got to this point where the, the last thing that this couple needed was a ramp for the husband to get his wife up. She was in a wheelchair into their house. And so as a church, we prayed about it. And we partnered with them through the money that you give in benevolence. So I just want to say thank you to those who give faithfully, sacrificially, above and beyond. We were able to help this couple get the ramp that they needed after this small group of men had painted their house, had done plumbing, had helped clean up in order to get them back sort of just to ground zero. And I can tell you, it's one of the ways God supplies the needs of his people. It's through you, through the gifts and services of his body. It's a beautiful picture of what the church is intended to be. Here's how Paul lands the plane. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you in spirit. It seems like an innocent end to a letter. I mean, it just seems like a, a sort of a sending off benedictory type of statement, but it's so much more than that. Because Paul writes back to a church who's in the colony of Christ in the midst of an empire of Rome. I mean, they are getting beat up. They're about to get killed for their faith in Jesus. And here's what Paul says at the very end of his letter. We greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. You, I mean, the shock on their faces when they read that must have been immense. Wait, there's a, there's a church in Caesar's palace? There's a church meeting amongst the people who want to kill us? Can you think about the way that this bursts light into the darkest of situations? And Paul goes, listen, I can be content. It feels like I'm running out of air, but I've got a source you have no idea about. I am confident in God's plan. I know God's provision, and I will rest in the fact that God has a plan in it all. He's got this persistent conviction or confidence in God's subversive plan. In the midst of the Roman Empire, a church is being birthed. In the midst of Caesar's household, people are saying no to the imperial cult. They're going, all right, I know we're still working here, but Caesar, you are not our Lord. And Caesar, you are not our Savior. And Caesar, we've met the one true son of God. And his name is Jesus. 
I'm reading my kids um, Chronicles of Narnia again this year, and we got to the point where it says, and Aslan is on the move. Yes! That's what's going on here. Jesus is on the move. He's on the move redeeming. He's on the move restoring. He's breaking into the darkest places with the light of the glory of the gospel. And you might say to me, hey, Paul said, I'm sure that was happening back then, but that kind of stuff doesn't happen today. Untrue. Untrue. Let me give you two ways it does, or two stories. My friend gave me a book recently called A Wind in the House of Islam. And in, in this book, the author, David Garrison, goes back and studies movements of the gospel in the midst of Islam. And here's what they found. They found that for the first 1,300 years of Islam, there were zero movements of the gospel. And by gospel movement, we mean over 1,000 people baptized or 100 churches planted. Zero. But in the 19th century, we saw one. In the last two centuries, we have seen roughly 83 gospel movements amongst Islam. Amongst Muslims, coming to Christ in record numbers. There are over 60 of them still going on right now. There's a church in Caesar's house. I'll give you a second example. Angola prison in New Orleans, 6,300 inmates. It was known as the bloodiest prison in the United States. Certainly one of the biggest. They have hospice care there because 80% of these inmates will never see the light of day again. They're there for life. And in 1995, they got a new warden. And that warden went to New Orleans Theological Baptist Seminary and asked him, would you be willing to come and to have a seminary in the prison? And as the seminary tried to scrape together the funds to do it back in 1995, they started a church in Angola prison. And over the last two decades, they've seen the crime rate absolutely plummet. They've seen 40 to 50 people every year graduate with a seminary degree. And they right now have 27 inmate pastors in Angola prison. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's... There's a church in Caesar's household. Jesus is on the move. My friends, I don't know, as we come to an end in this study, how this letter has hit you. But man, for me, I have been challenged by God to walk in joy in new and fresh ways. I've been challenged by God to be sacrificial and generous in different ways that I had been before. I was convicted last week that there's anxiety in my soul. And today, I'm just at the place where I'm going, Jesus, I believe that you are enough for me. 
and I want to be you to be sufficient in me for every day and every want and every season that you, O oh God, truly are my shepherd. I shall not want. There's this legend of a man who was heard about the Apostle Paul, who was a rich merchant, and he spent some time trying to find him, and finally he did find him in Rome, and Timothy was there with, with him near his cell, and this merchant went to Timothy and said, can I just spend a few minutes with the Apostle Paul in prison? And Timothy said, sure. And so this merchant went in and sat down with Paul for just a few minutes, and as he came out, he said, Timothy, the eyes, eyes were just wide. And Timothy asked him, well, what did you think? And the merchant said back to Timothy, where in the world does this immense power come from? And Timothy looked at the merchant and said, well, don't you know? And he said, no, that's why I'm asking. I, I don't know. And he says, Paul has found the love his soul longs for. And he said, is that it? And Timothy responded to him by saying, that is all any of us need. Let's pray. And so Jesus... We come in a posture this morning of dependence, believing that you're enough for us. And Lord, for the person or the people in this space today who are going through a season where it feels like they're running out of air, would you pull them deeper with you? Would you remind them of your power? Would you remind them of your providence? Would you remind them of your plan? And may it all work in our hearts and our souls to allow us to declare back to you that, Lord, we're grounded in your love. And therefore, we can live in your way. It's our soul's deepest desire, Jesus. Thank you for being sufficient in any circumstance and every season. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing our benediction together?